0: Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Today, I will be speaking with Scott Critch, professor of film and media studies at Colorado College, about his book, Beyond Bias, Conservative Media, Documentary Form, and the Politics of Hysteria. The book was published in 2021 by Oxford University Press. In our chat, Scott discusses the development and rise of conservative documentaries along with the various methods used to present the subjects in the films. Welcome, Scott Critch. Hi, Scott.
1: Hi, Joel. How are you?
0: I'm fine, thanks. I'm glad we had a chance to talk. Uh, I actually had the book for a little while, but then I finally got time to reach out and for us to do this. So the book we're talking about is Beyond Bias, Conservative Media, Documentary Form, and the Politics of Hysteria. Sort of a long title, but I frankly think the most important word in it is hysteria, which you talk about quite a bit in the book. But let's get into your background a little bit. You're currently working at Colorado College, I think is correct, uh, and where you're in the film and you're film and media studies, and you're also the chair of the film department or film and media.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I've, this is my 10th academic year at, at Colorado college in Colorado Springs. Um, and, uh, of course wrapping up, um, a difficult, exhausting, uh, year of trying to, you know, teach a lot of courses on zoom and, uh, try to make sense of life during COVID. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm glad that we're easing into the the summer and hopefully a time to to relax and I'm also uh, really glad and excited to to chat about this uh, this book um, and uh, and to think about conservative media from kind of a variety of angles.
0: Now you've obviously been thinking about this topic for a long time. Uh, I've looked through some of the material that you've written in the past articles and such and Conservative media seems to have been something you've talked about quite a bit, and one of the things that, that I noticed in both your biography and also in the book is that some of it, obviously the content's important, but you, have a, you try to come up with theoretical background and theoretical reasons for m- many of the points you make. So what led you to wanting to first write about this as a topic in general and then finally get it into book form?
1: Yeah, well... It does go back a ways for me, in, in some ways, it, it goes all the way back uh, to my childhood. As, as someone who was um, growing up in a staunchly conservative evangelical household, where you know Rush Limbaugh was uh, always on the radio um, in uh, in my family car, and so so it it, it goes back uh, as as long as I can remember. Um, in some ways, and uh, as as far as the the kind of more uh, academic trajectory. Um, I really started to think about conservative political media right about the time I was finishing up graduate work at Oklahoma State University um, around 2010. And, you know, I had been uh, looking a little bit uh, at that time at the left-behind novels and films and these kinds of evangelical apocalypse films and thinking about the way in which... um, conservative media was, um, in, in those cases, kind of the, uh, Christian conservative media was commenting, um, allegorically through, through these novels and films on, on kind of the events of the day. Um, but I think what really, what really sparked, um, this project is I was, um, kind of looking around and, and trying to find a way into this, um, rather kind of challenging, uh, media landscape was actually the, the Glenn Beck program on Fox News. Glenn Beck um, was the kind of uh, most popular program on Fox News at the time. And in the kind of secular journalistic reporting on Glenn Beck, um, the word hysteria was used, you know, often in a kind of off-the-cuff way to describe um, his performance style. You know, he would often uh, cry on camera um, over the top uh, expressions of emotions and rage, um, you know, directed against, you know, all, all of the kind of antagonists that, that, that I think if we are familiar with, with conservative political media, um, you know, such as the the liberal media, um, the socialist uh, Democrats as, as they're often described, um, there wasn't anything particularly new in terms of the content on Glenn Beck's program at that time, but in terms of the form, um, his, uh, costumes and his affect. Um, and then what really jumped out at me was his excessive use of blackboards, right? Here he is on, on cable news. Um, but taking, taking this kind of teacherly affect, um, of writing, um, you know, details and names and conspiracy theories, but putting them up in this kind of, uh, old, uh, media form on, on chalk on blackboards. Um, and, and one of the things that jumped out at me at, at that moment was that, The blackboards and the and he would sometimes have like a dozen blackboards on the on the soundstage at once were so chock full of data and information that they actually um, were not informative, right? Even if one was trying to follow along and and was trying to um, believe or understand what Beck was saying at that point, um, the the information was actually working against understanding, right? One became more confused the more one followed along. Um, and so that, that, that was kind of the moment where I, I first started to want to think, wanting to think about hysteria and to take hysteria seriously, um, not in the kind of everyday colloquial use of the term, but, um, but as someone uh, who at the time as a grad student was already invested in psychoanalytic theory to really dig into the archive um of psychoanalytic accounts of hysteria and then the more i did that uh, the more resonances and connections that i saw uh, not just you know between you know glenn beck and hysterical discourse but rather um right-wing media at large on talk radio on cable news and then as eventually i would find in feature-length documentary films
0: so i didn't i don't, I don't know where you grew up i know you talked about it, it was this conservative household uh, was it? Did you live in a conservative neighborhood or a conservative city or state? Well,
1: yes, yeah, so I grew up in the Los Angeles area in the San Fernando Valley, um, and I uh, my parents attended uh, what we would call not quite a mega church, but kind of a, a, an aspiring mega church. Um, I and I went to private Christian schools from kindergarten through through high school, um, and and so in some ways I think that was also informative um, to many of the arguments and interests that I that I develop in the book of living in um, in in a kind of, you know, massive urban sprawl of L.A., um, but also seeing the ways in which um, the church I attended, the Baptist school I attended, um, the ways in which these institutions attempted to uh, reach out right to the secular world to present themselves in a kind of proselytizing fashion, um, rather than you know encapsulating themselves uh, in this like narrow echo chamber, um, you know the church that I attended, we would have like rock concerts on a Wednesday afternoon, so as to appeal to the unsaved, right? This is one of the one of the moves that that they would make, and and so. Um, you know, I, I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit later. But the, the chapter where I look at cons- conservative evangelical documentary, I, I noticed a lot of the same appeals and gestures and structures of trying to make, um, you know, a, a kind of very very narrow ideological position to make it palatable um, to what they would you know call non-believers.
0: It's funny because one of the things you say literally at the beginning, in the first paragraph of your introduction, and I think it it pretty much says everything that's why I said before, the word hysteria I found to be uh, so important in what you're talking about. Um, it invites the intended audience into a perpetual state of confusion, deploying the incomprehensible scenes it regularly stages to perpetuate fear, anxiety, and a sen- general sense of discomfort about democracy as such, and of course, I underlined confusion, fear, anxiety, and discomfort. Mm-hmm. And we've said this a lot. I mean, if you know, it's it's one of those topics that comes up pretty regularly in political discussions and media, where especially conservative um, seems to be trying its best to keep you keep you as scared as possible as long as possible. That the more they can scare you the more likely you're going to go along with whatever they're saying we need to do in order to make you less scared. And um, I think that's where, but then the confusion part where, and you said it with the blackboard, you try to say something and pretend like you're doing it as a educational description, but when you look at what the person is saying or trying to say either in a documentary or you say with like Beck with his uh, chalkboards, it doesn't make any sense. It's totally incomprehensible.
1: Right. Yeah. And I I think um, one of the things that struck me, um, as someone who was trying to take seriously and to, um, to read the conservative media objects, um, how, how does one put it in the best possible light to take it seriously on its own terms? Um, of course, for outsiders who don't subscribe to kind of the the values of of contemporary conservatism um and in in the us it's going to look like nonsense it's going to look incoherent um it's going to uh, appear confusing um, but what i found striking um as i the more and more i dove into the material um is that the the very structure of the of the appeals of the arguments right resisted coherence that they resisted um, explanation, um, that even to, uh, even if one assumed, um, that the arguments were being made in good faith, um, there was, there was still this kind of underlying incoherence that then, that led me to, you know, I think make the claim that, that part of what makes, uh, certain facets of conservative media incoherent at a kind of, uh, constitutive level, um, is that, their, their arguments are fundamentally about democracy, um, about politics uh, within a liberal democracy, and yet they do not invest in, in any kind of serious sense uh, of the term um, in the democratic process, right? That um, what horrifies, I think, um, so many prominent conservative speakers and um, what I think coordinates so much, so much of the messaging in, in conservative documentary film, um, is the trauma that there are other people uh, and other groups uh, in the US that with, with whom they radically disagree, um, and, the, and the, the very trauma right of, of, of inhabiting a country in which uh, from time to time others might be in charge, others might be elected president, and that there's a, a kind of absolute resistance um, to this kind of basic, basic democratic reality. And I think that, that to me explains a lot um, of of the confusion that that plays out in these in these uh, objects and case studies that I work through.
0: Well, and I think this is one of the things we see, um, and we can use current events right now. That uh, some of the discuss some of the media coverage of the election and the fact that there's, you know, that people on Fox News and some of the other right wing uh, media were making comments about the election being fraudulent Mm -hmm. and when they get got sued about it, went to court and say, well, we know it wasn't true. I mean, you know, what do we, we're not stupid, Mm -hmm. but it's sort of like they, now that they, it's like they want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to be able to say anything they want to say, but they don't want to be held responsible for it. (laughs) Right, right,
1: right. Well, I think that's, um, again one of the things that prompted me to to jump into this project was uh of course the conservative media is highly successful it's highly entertaining um you know fox news gets viewers talk radio gets viewers and um and i wondered how we might take seriously um how uh, effective uh right-wing media is at at directing kind of the the conversation um at kind of uh, establishing uh, many of the frameworks, uh, of, uh, of the debates, the, the, kind of we engage in. Um, but, uh, you know, also just to recognize that, that, uh, right-wing news, if we want to call it that, right, is, is just an effective mode of entertainment, right? Like that uh, viewers and listeners, uh, tune in every day. And I think p- part of the reason for that, um, is because they are less interested in, the kind of difficult work of um, contextualizing events historically of investing uh, in journalists um, who will report in depth uh, on the events of the day they they kind of slide over the, uh, the kind of difficulties, if, if not the, the, the potentially kind of boring aspects of gaining context, right? Like I think, um, I don't, I don't watch cable news much anymore. I don't have it on inside the house. Uh, but when I'm traveling and I, you know, I turn it on, um, you know, to turn on the, the evening news, uh, or even something like CNN, um, is not nearly as entertaining as turning on Tucker Carlson, uh, or Sean Hannity in a certain way of speaking, right? Like it's, it's horrifying. Right. But, but even the, you know, in the same way that we go to, to you know, the theater to watch horror films, there's something entertaining about um, the kind of, um, you know, the predictable talking points that they circulate so regularly.
0: I was uh, thinking about this as I was reading the book. I was saying to myself, this explains to me why I get just as angry at people trying to, on social media, attacking. Or, you know, trying to get these folks to listen to them. You know, Mm -hmm. you you, you go after, you know, Laura Ingram or one of them who says something so outlandish and you somehow think they're going to listen to you. So you just Mm -hmm. say anything Mm -hmm. and it's like, well, you're almost playing the same game. You're just Mm -hmm. assuming that if you say it, they'll change their mind instead Mm -hmm. of just not reacting, which sometimes is the better way. And, And one of the ways you do that, as you just point out, is to ignore it as much as you can and avoid I mean, I don't watch. I mean, I had the cable news on quite a bit during the election period, but not anymore. I don't need it. I get my news through enough variety of sources that it's not important. And I teach a class in information literacy. And one of the things that you will often get students talking about is they've already taken up this whole concept of fake news because that's what they've heard over and over again and so much of that is built around the idea that they think that that's the only place they get the news is from television which of course is one of the things that we've always seen over you know in in 50 60 years since tv has become so important and yet part of that is the idea that somehow that's the, the tr- that news that we see in that format must be the the real news. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think exactly right and and I think this is um... Again, one of the, the powerful features of of kind of prominent conservative political media today is that it, it really commits to a narrative, um, and you know narratives can be uh, entertaining, they can be alluring, um, they're not necessarily you know good history or good reportage, um, but but they you know do bring people back, um, and they they allow us a kind of sense of consistency, you know, in, in the in the way that um, you know this is this is not a a brilliant insight to point out the, the fact that the conservative, both politicians, uh, and conservative celebrities, uh, will describe any, um, any policy proposal that they don't like as socialist, right. Or as Marxist or as a slippery slope leading to these things that, um, of course, again, that, that's, that seems like nonsense. And, 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 and I think it is, um, but it plays effectively to their audiences.
0: And of course, uh, it takes a, a an important thing like gun violence or gun usage and turns it into if we do anything and, and you know i actually had a student throw off this argument about um, well if you know they're going to take our guns and it'll be like the 19 it'll be like the 1930s in Nazi Germany because of course they don't know that they heard that from somebody else and so that becomes one of the tropes you hear quite a bit and it's an argument that has no way of proving or disproving it's just an argument that has no invalidity and and, and and i think that's one of the things you talk about about so much of what they say it's not meant to actually come up with a solution it's actually meant just to keep the argument going
1: yeah, yeah, no, I think that's exactly right, and I and I think, again, it speaks to what I think is the rhetorical effectiveness, you know, at least for their intended audience, is that um, if you have more liberal, progressive um, voices in this country that are pushing uh, for things like uh, gun reform, uh, police reform, uh, the Green New Deal, whatever else, um, like kind of addressing these kind of major systemic problems and trying to propose solutions, um, that that's, um, that's quite different from the, the kinds of arguments that I'm keying in on, uh, in, in this project where the, the conservative arguments are not about a claim for a better future. They're not about, um, um, and the endorsement of their policy proposals rather rather than others, instead, they're kind of a a form of trolling that their arguments are embedded directly within counteracting, right the uh, proposal any proposals coming out of the left, right? And so they kind of embed themselves um, in the the forms and the styles and the aesthetics. Um, of whoever they're arguing against. You know, uh, there's a chapter on Michael Moore documentaries um, that I think kinda, you know, gets the point across quite directly um, that while Michael Moore, whatever we think about Michael Moore as a filmmaker, you know, in his early work where he's thinking about uh, you know, globalization and um, economic devastation um, in places like Flint, Michigan, um, or the the hist- histories of racial violence and gun violence in in, a, in bowling for Columbine, that the conservative reactions to those films um, are are not addressing the political issues, the political content. They're only addressing Michael Moore, right? as an individual. Um, they make fun of his weight. Um, they make presumptions about um, his intentions that he doesn't really care about. Um, the the political content of his films he's just trying to get rich or he's trying to be, become famous um and they copy his his style um and they uh they mimic his his forms all the way through but again not to not to stage a debate uh about guns right or about about economics right but rather to um dis- distract uh from the real debate and make it all about the personality of the person that they're attacking and and i think that that's um One of the things that I I hope, um, you know, people will take away from the book if they give it a look is that um, by taking seriously that cycle of anti Michael Moore films, we might notice um, the similar structures of argument that are persistent across the landscape of of contemporary conservative media. It's not just those particular films attacking Michael Moore, but rather it's it's a rhetorical trope that the conservative uh, media comes back to again and again for instance, of personalizing um, issues rather than engaging in a kind of more, th- you know, full-throated debate.
0: I must admit, Michael, <clears throat> Michael Morris, who brought me back to documentaries, I mean, I grew up in a period of time where the only thing that would quote most of the what we would call a documentary, which obviously weren't, you know, you th- people think of back in the day, Right around the time Michael Moore became well well known, was the average person you asked them what a documentary was, they'd probably say, "Oh, something I saw when I was in school," and they would show these films, and they were documentaries, which educational films don't, you know, aren't necessarily the same thing. And one of the things that I remember quite well, when as far back as Roger and me, was that there was this constant complaint about how Roger, uh, you know. Michael Moore's films weren't fair because he takes a point of view. Mm-hmm. Missing the point that documentaries have always taken points of view. It just so happens if it's a point of view you don't like, you're more likely to to go back, as you say, go after the filmmaker. Don't go after the subject because we'll just say, oh, he shouldn't have a point of view in his film. And yet, from that point on, I mean, frankly, I can't imagine why anybody would think being a documentary filmmaker is a way to make money, at least back in when Michael Moore first started doing them. Nowadays, if you're good at what you do, you can probably do pretty well. There's a number of documentary filmmakers who do quite well now, uh, but it's not something that, as far as filmmaking, is concerned back in the day because getting them into film theaters were was, was very difficult. I remember I did see Bowling for Columbine in the theater— uh, but it was in an art theater it wasn't showing at the regular theaters in the, in the in the city and so um it's still hard nowadays though with streaming and everything else getting a a film out there is not difficult and so I suspect that has a lot to do with it too and and this is why I wanted to to get a little bit more into what you saw as the history because which I know the first chapter you talk a little you do go back into the background of these conservative films I mean who what are what are the underlyings? I mean, how far back can we truthfully say that this period of of these kind these documentary conservative documentaries goes back to?
1: Yeah, I, I think um, I think it's a good question, and um, i don't I don't even know that I have a good answer to that. Um, you know one one of the things I wanted uh, to avoid, um, you know, was the the label of of propaganda, right? because propaganda, the history of propaganda, um, you know, in film and, and beyond, um, you know, goes goes back quite far. Um, you know, we could certainly look at the, uh, you know, films produced by uh, the U.S. government and military during World War II as you know, one might describe as conservative. The, the Why We Fight uh, series um, are, are certainly um, conservative of, of a particular kind, right? Um, but I, I think for for this project, apart from you know, the, the chapter on creationism and uh, fundamentalism that does go back and look at creationist um, nonfiction films. And, and I guess we could, you know, maybe quibble about when the, the label of documentary um, is appropriate or, or not. Um, that's about as far back as, as I go to um, the, the sermons from science uh, that came out of the Moody Institute uh, in Chicago and Irwin Moon, um, where Moon you know, this uh, pros- proselytizer was, was using uh, scientific experiments to try to prove the existence of God, to try to prove the theory of intelligent design. Um, that's about as far back as, as I go. Um, but I really do see, like, Michael Moore as, as kind of this um, emergent moment um, that, I, that is really the jumping off point for the, the rest of the project, that um, the kind of proliferation of feature length conservative documentary films and videos really do start um, in earnest, uh, in the attempt to rebut the claims, uh, found in, in, Michael Moore's films. Um, and so I think it's really from there, um, you know, f- from kind of 2000 ish forward, that you really see, uh, the proliferation of, of, films again, against, uh, Michael Moore, against Obama. Um, I think, uh, this was another trend that I noticed quite quickly is that, um, most of the, the conservative documentaries I could get my hands on were about um, rebutting, refuting, counteracting uh, claims of, of kind of existing prominent progressive figures or proposals. Um, not, there wasn't like a positive core, a kind of um, agenda of their own rather than just negating or drowning out, right, in the, the, the voices of others.
0: Yeah, I think the drowning out part is the important part, I think, in many ways. It's like, rather than actually um, focus on what these progressives might be saying, it makes more sense to just put your hands over the ears and say, no, 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 I'm not listening, and therefore just somehow refute the person personally. So, of course, AOC gets marked, you know, they the way they get at her, they constantly talk about how she was a waitress, you know, a bartender, so that somehow is a negative, and that's how they refute what I think she might say. And as you pointed out a little earlier, the same way with uh, um, Michael Moore, his weight. Is other, and, of course, Obama, his Kenyan father, becomes you know the key to the whole thing all over and over again. So uh, it, I think those are good examples. I think right you start right from the beginning, and probably one of the more well-known of these folks is, is Steve Bannon. Who uh, obviously worked for Trump, although to this day I'm not completely sure what he was trying to do, whether he was doing it just for his own uh, what he wanted, and therefore felt. I mean, obviously there was no question in the in the Trump administration the concept of chaos and confusion was very important. Now whether it was deliberate or not, we don't. I don't know how much we can say that, but somebody like Steve Bannon clearly do does what he can to try to confuse. And you talk about uh, his film, um, about the, the 2008 uh, crisis, uh, economic crisis as an example, a great example of a documentary film from a conservative point of view that has no real argument, has no real attempt to educate, but just to continue with the confusion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and yeah that, that film uh, is called Generation Zero, um, and I, I, you know, came across Steve Bannon, you know, without knowing anything about him. And in fact, um, when I first started looking at, um, these films that he made, many of them with the, uh, kind of conservative production company, Citizens United, um, you know, he was just the, the listed director on IMDB when I, when I looked it up and I didn't go much further than that. So, um, you know, I was kind of, taken, uh, you know, taken by surprise when then Bannon became, you know, this, such a, such a recognizable figure, um, when he became associated with Trump, you know, whereas, you know, he'd just been kind of, again, an, an, a name that, that I was citing in parentheses when I looked at, at these films. Um, but yeah, the, the, the film generation zero, um, you know, attempts to offer an explanation for the, the financial crisis and the subprime. Uh, housing bubble uh, that the kind of crystallized in in 2008. Um, and and one of the things that really jumped out at me watching that film. Um, and I and I will say that you know to sit with these films and videos, um, many of which are released directly to DVD or online. Um, not not a lot of them play in theaters. Some of the some of the f- uh, films directed and starring uh, Dinesh D'Souza have played you know widely, but a lot of these. Um, take a little time to to, to track down, um, and in fact, I found uh, some of these in like local libraries uh, around Colorado, which is which is itself a kind of like uh, um, a, a, a a troubling um, you know discovery. Um, but the in watching these films, they they are quite monotonous um, again because they are always just coming back to the same talking pain, points, the same narratives, the same arguments over and over again. And so, one of the things I was really looking for. Were, you know, were there examples that would help to crystallize, that, that perhaps magnified um, some of the common rhetorical techniques um, that I think are dominant in a, in a lot of conservative media? And the, and the one that, that jumped out at me watching Generation Zero was its heavy reliance on stock footage um, and archival materials um, to make really the most outlandish atla- claims, right? Um, the, you know, you call them historical arguments, but not really, right? Because if um, one of the, the things I point to in Generation Zero is that the in, a, in this 10-minute sequence, it goes back to um, stock footage of white suburban housewives spoiling their children um, that then, according to the logic of the film, produced... Um, this entitled generation of the 60s and 70s. And then, you know, as we're getting the narration and the in the interviews that are explaining these historical sequences, we're seeing, you know, Woodstock, you know, uh, archival footage, um, then cut to, you know, stock footage of yuppies driving in convertible cars in the 80s, um, all leading to the claim that... Um, the spoiling of children in fifty in the 50s produced the entitled generations of hippies and radicals in the 60s and 70s. And that somehow by the film's kind of historical uh, timeline, those would have been the people, you know, on, in Wall Street, um, you know, uh, repackaging uh, subprime mortgage bonds into, you know, these complex derivatives. And that's so, so this is somehow the explanation for um, this major crisis. Um, and so the again, it's not exactly an argument so much as if you were to watch um, this assortment of stock and archival footage from 1950s to the present, you know, how would you turn that into some sort of narrative? It's, it's in effect what they what they've done. Um, and yet I've, I've heard these claims repeated, um, both anecdotally, just talking with uh, conservative folks, you know, with, you know, in my family or in my circle or or just even seeing Um, you know, claims that continue to come up uh, in places like Fox Fox News and Breitbart that the 2008 financial crisis was, you know, the, you know, government forcing banks to give loans to poor people. Like,
0: And of course, anything that's got real evidence says the exact opposite that it was the lack of government uh, oversight to a large extent that led to so much of that because you let somebody do whatever they want to do, and the chances are good they're going to do what they want to do and, and especially if there's money involved. Um, the other thing you talk about a lot is the and you you've already touched on it is the religious aspect that religion and, Fundamentalism and those kind of issues are particularly important in, in many of these films. That, as you say, they may well have been the underlying aspect of it, and that these films, which probably work out as perfect examples, because if there's one thing that you can't prove, it's the existence of anything that a religion's going to believe. I mean, anybody who says they can prove it can't. They can say what they believe, and they can say what they can use faith. But in the end, they're not going to be able to point out. And that's where it can get particularly tough when you're around conservative people who who use things like, well, God, you know, God was watching us, and then you want to say to them, well, what about all the other people? Where, what, what's He doing about them? Why isn't He watching them? Why were you so special? And you can't have those arguments because they're circular. They're, ne- you're never going to win. And and that's, I think, where you've pointed out in many of these other films, they've all come off on the idea that instead of using arguments that have that are based in facts and evidence, we're just going to use arguments to to make our point, and who cares what evidence we use.
1: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and I think um, that it takes me back to, you know, the, the title of the book of, of Beyond Bias. Um, one, one of the things I intend by by naming the book that way is, is number one, to get away from this idea of bias. You know, bias is, I think, a term that gets thrown around so, so much in um, in topic in talking about political media, certain, certainly in the way in which, um, you know, conventional. Uh, reporters and documentarians have dealt with Fox News uh, and, and conservative media at large, certainly in the way in which conservative media um, spends a lot of its time you know, pointing out what they call liberal bias in the mainstream media. Um, but I think, like, especially as it relates to uh, questions of belief and of ideology and of claims to truth, um, that bias, I think, is a kind of unavoidable feature of, of human existence, that we are, all, we are all biased uh, by, um, you know, the limitations of our experience, uh, of, of what we've taken in, of what has uh, influenced us. Um, and, and I think one of my, my favorite examples, I think, that illustrates this is in the, on, in the chapter on uh, fundamentalism, um, where the 1991 documentary, Blood in the Face, that, um, that looks kind of in an observational way at, uh, at a group of neo-Nazis in rural Michigan um and uh you know is seeking to expose and uncover the persistence of of kind of white supremacy in this country but also runs into a bit of a problem ethically that um in in trying to be observational and trying to be objective and trying to avoid bias on the side of the filmmakers um it raises the question is like well what if what if the film that you're making is just become, becomes a recruitment tool for the very subjects uh for the institutions that you're trying to expose or to critique. Um and in fact, like one of the late interviews with the leader of this neo-Nazi group, he says as much on camera. He says basically, I don't I don't care what you do with this footage. I'm we're happy for your cameras to be here at our meetings and at our picnics, um, because from from their perspective, um, they just want to get their message out there, right? And they and they don't care. And I think um to me that 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 particularly fraught moment of how does one uh, repre- represent, right, the most kind of vile belief systems and institutions, right, and and do it in, in a kind of objective, informative way, while also not reproducing the very thing you're trying to expose.
0: So let's back up a little bit. I mean, we're, we've been not backing up so much. We've been all over the place, but we're hitting things from the book. But after your introduction, in which you lay out a lot of the, the theory and, and other points for everything you you want to try to say in the book, um, you talk about the concept of hysterical bias, and and this is why I said towards the at the beginning that that word hysterical and hysteria is so important. What do you mean by hysterical bias? And and because obviously some of the material you put in here are your own, a lot of it's your own ideas and things that you developed over time. So when we talk about hysterical bias, what are we what are we talking about?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a big question. Um, I have to say, honestly, um, I, I shied away a little bit from from in kind of taking on uh, the concept of of hysteria in this project for for quite a while. And in part because, um, you know, it has such a, a troubled history, um, you know, in the West, especially of, of, of particularly of disciplining uh female and female identifying bodies as hysterics right the, the hysteria hysteric is a term um that we use um you know in in uh everyday language often to to denigrate the expression of emotion uh and it's certainly in the the history of the of the clinic and in of the psychoanalytic clinic uh in particular um of uh controlling uh the hysterical female body um again these are these are kind of troubling uh, histories that are attached to that term. Um, but nevertheless, what what I found um, so useful um, about hysteria, um, apart from the fact that it was just kind of continually thrown around um, again in kind of um, in the journalistic record and, and responses, especially to people like Glenn Beck and Sean Hannity and whatever else, um, that one thing i noticed had maybe been underdeveloped in the psychoanalytic archive in discussions of hysteria is that hysteria is a kind of affective excess and trauma that occurs when we are caught in moments of ambivalence um, in structures um, that are not of our choosing um, that um, limit our freedom that limit our expressions of desire and if we go back to You know joseph breuer and sigmund freud and their studies on hysteria and the the young women that they were treating um, those expressions of hysterical symptoms um, often emerged in situations where um, these young women were caring for ill relatives um, had uh, desires that because of the kind of cultural and historical moment they were living in they could not express and so um, hysteria was a kind of complaint, a form of protest um, that lacked a vocabulary um, that maybe lacked viable means of of, of expression um, or or kind of a political outlet. Um, and so, um, I, I definitely, through throughout the book, connects to this this archive on hysteria as a reasonable form of complaint, of an expression of protest um, against. The establishment or the established order before an answer has yet been has 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 yet arisen as a possibility. Um, but then, what I noticed in in conservative media was kind of the perpetuation of this complaint of complaint for its own sake, um, of complaint as a form of as as we've said earlier earlier of drowning out um, virtually you know any any other alternative viewpoint. Um, and, and, and some of the examples I point to that I think illustrate quite, quite, uh, usefully this kind of hysterical discourse is the ways in which conservative speakers often mimic or, or repeat back with a slight change, um, whatever they're hearing from the other side. So I think like all lives matter as a response to black lives matter is a hysterical response, Mm -hmm. right? It's, it's, it's not a, Active political platform. There's no like platform for, for the All Lives Matter movement. All Lives Matter is a is a retort that seeks to depoliticize, right, the claims on behalf of, of Black Lives Matters. And and um and so I think there's these acts of depoliticization, um, of noise, of 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 kind of stealing the forms, you know, the 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 kind of ideas of the other side without actually engaging them. Even even the label of fake news, right? The way Trump took Fake news, which was you know a, a label that had just emerged you know in the 20, 2016 election, um, looking at you know Russian hackers that were trying to influence you know the American election, um, he took that term and then made it made it his kind of blanket way of describing uh, any and all news stories or news organizations that painted him in a negative light, um, and so I think that that's what I'm getting at when I talk about histor- his, hysterical conservative discourse is this commitment to form uh, at the expense of content, the ex- the commitment to spectacle that avoids, you know, a thorough um, debate or really the the onset of a real disagreement. And I think this is true throughout the various case studies um, I look at, is that again and again, um, these uh, conservative films are trying to stop the debate before it really gets started.
0: Well, that's it. I mean, it, it comes down to one of the things that uh, we've those of us who have memory of political system of the political system before the current time where you can actually have a an argument where two people are on opposing sides and yet have an argument with actual facts and data without turning it into what the phrase you use i know you are but what am i where the idea that somehow you come to attempt to come to agreement of course every time nowadays whenever there's a political discussion, they'll say, well, what the people want is both sides to talk to each other. And yet there really isn't a particular benefit in many ways to do that because part of what we're arguing about is the actual, is the argument, not what you're trying to argue, but the actual argument. Um, You use the term noise uh, in Chapter 3. Can you explain, because I mean... um, Obviously, uh, you're using it based on the concept of bias, uh, but using the word noise. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I know you get involved with with a number of theoretical, political uh, folks and and their ideas and how all this ties together. And I think Chapter 3, you go into a lot of detail about that. You do throughout the whole book, but uh, I I don't even want to try to say some of these uh, these names because I'll probably butcher them. So I'll let you talk a little bit about... um, how the the discourse theory related to politics, and how this all relates to documentaries?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, by noise, I have in mind uh, the French political theorist uh, Jacques Rancière um, and his account of political aesthetics. Um, and to, to, try, to try to you know summarize Rancière quickly, um, when when he talks about noise, uh, he has in mind what he calls the the kind of policing. Um, of of the political and the distribution of the sensible that you know in in a in a democratic society um there will inevitably be uh, constituencies and groups and peoples that uh whose voices have not been heard right who have not um been accepted into the kind of political uh hegemony as it exists right and that um when when these, uh, outsider groups or what he calls the, the part who have no part, um, make claims that something is wrong, that they have been left out. Uh, the, the, one of the kind of conventional moves of the established order is to try to, um, reduce these political claims as mere noise, right. As, as, um, as speech that is not deserving to be heard. Um, and so I think, you know, one way, and one way that we might, you know, point to this is, um, right-wing critiques of Black Lives Matters, right? That, um, one of the ways I think in which, um, the right-wing attempts to police, um, this kind of current civil rights movement and these calls for justice, um, is to denigrate them, not in terms of their actual kind of political claims, right? But to say that, well, what they're asking for is impossible, um, and uh, to emphasize you know, those, uh, those small number of protests across the country that led to you know, the burning down of buildings and destruction of property, um, that time and time again, the, the retort right, is to reduce these political claims of a wrong to, to bear noise, right? as this is, this is not the right time, this is not the right place, um there's no sense to it this we couldn't possibly you know we couldn't possibly defund the, the police this would be this is you know this is nonsense but that's a that's a kind of political gesture it's it's a it's a form of rhetoric so that's like you know Ron- account of noise um what what i noticed in the uh conservative media that that i focus on uh, throughout the book is that rather than reducing the other side to noise or rather than denigrating Political claims of their opponents, the, the conservative films actually use noise as their kind as one of their go-to gestures. Again, as a way of drowning out and, and confusing um, the you know the debates at issue. And and to me, like the perfect example of this is in one of the anti-Michael Moore films, uh, Fahrenheit 9/11, which was a response to Fahrenheit 9/11. You know, Michael Moore. You know, makes the. You know, it's, it's not it's not the most important argument in Fahrenheit 9/11, which is not one of my favorites of of his. Um, but he points out that Bush was uh, spent more time on vacation than any other uh, president in, in modern American history, right? Which I don't know. Maybe Trump's uh, golfing trips uh, have now exceeded that. Um, so you know, Michael Moore makes an arguable point, right? Like Bush spent a lot of time on vacation um, during his presidency. Um, now, in response. Um, to that in Fahrenheit 9/11, this conservative rebuttal, um, there's a, a sequence where they take one of Bush's vacations, where he went back to his ranch on Texas, and they're listing all of the official, um, you know, meetings and uh, you know, kind of important work that he was doing while he was on vacation. Now, at the level of just like disagreement or debate, this is actually a reasonable point, right? That. You know, Michael Moore makes his claim. Bush is always on vacation. The, the rebuttal is, well, he's actually working when he's on vacation, in which case it's not a vacation. That would be a reasonable point. Right. But what happens in the sequence is that they list so many of his official activities and they scroll up and down up the screen so quickly that you can't actually read, you know, the information. And so this takes me back to like the Glenbeck Beck chalkboards um, that the data um, is so excessive Right? that we, we lose touch with what the, the point that's being made. Confusion reigns right, rather than, than explanation. And so that's, that's my little kind of tweak to Ranciere's political theory around noise is that they're actually using noise um, again in a way that is actually counterproductive to their own argument
0: because it's actually even though it has the patina of evidence it's not really evidence because they don't actually use the they don't use the data in the argument they make the argument but then they don't give you the absolute ability to to verify the argument they're making they just okay. sc- scroll a bunch of information and all it ends up doing as we've talked about with some of the other ones is confuse you more than anything else or you in a position where you just accept it because it's easier that way (laughs) because anything else would require you to think about it too much and they're not there to try to you know they want to make their arguments and they're going to make it in a way where they can make a point whether you agree or disagree is impossible because you don't have the evidence one way or the other
1: yeah yeah well i think that's where it speaks to it it kind of takes it goes back to, I think, the conservative uh, economic model of of cable news, of committing to certain narratives and certain talking points, regardless of context. um, So that, you know, if if one was paying attention to just kind of mainstream news last January, last February, you know, there was already news about COVID, you know, starting to spread around the globe. So that, you know, once uh, it started to break out in, in Washington state and some other places. Um, of course, it was it was troubling, horrifying, difficult. But there was a sense of, um, at least for me, like it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a terrible surprise at that point. Right. It had already spread so far and wide. Um, whereas if if you were consuming, I think, conservative uh, media watching Fox News at that time, there was no coverage of what was going on in the world, as is often the case. There's not a lot of, you know, global news that's that's offered so that then you know, when this major event happens, you know, it's not terribly surprising that, that then, um, you know, conservative speakers and politicians are rushing to kind of create these, um, you know, these, these stories of evildoers who are are out to get us, you know, when in fact, the entire world is succumbing to this pandemic.
0: And sort of interesting and related to that is the fact that, uh, Trump and obviously then Fox News would use the same excuse. Well, we didn't want to we didn't want to panic anybody, so we wanted to be real. We 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 didn't want to say things that would panic people, and yet in the end, they tend to like to panic people anyway. So uh, it was an interesting way to an excuse to not talk about it. Where uh, of course back then especially. You don't go outside of the mainstream, and the mainstream for them would have been Trump, his people, and, and so on and so forth. Um, I wanted to ask you, I mean, we've talked a lot about bits and pieces. We're sort of all over the place, but I think we've hit many of the major topics in the book. But how successful are these? I don't, I don't mean now with getting their information across. Is there money to be made by these conservative filmmakers? I mean, are, how many people are watching these? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you know it's 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 hard to say, and um, it's really not. Um, that's not the kind of you know work that I do of digging into um, you know the kind of audience analysis. Um, although I, I think it's it's a perfectly you know reasonable question, and it's worth looking at. Um, I mean, to be quite honest, when I when I realized I wanted to you know, write a book on conservative media, the prospect of looking at the, you know, never-ending archive of talk radio or of Fox News um, was not something I was jumping, uh, you know. I was going to ask at.
0: you, I'm going to mention at the beginning, thanks for watching all these so the rest of us don't have to. Yeah,
1: right, right. That, yeah, it's not the first time I've heard that. Um, yeah, and so when I when I started looking at, at these, you know, feature-length films, um, what – at, at, at the most practical level, what I saw was the kind of condensation of of many of the, you know, arguments you would hear on a day to day basis, you know, on in, in places like Fox News, in part because the films are made by many of the same people. They include interviews um, with many of the same people. Um, so whether, you know, whether the Steve Bannon uh, films or the Citizens United films and videos are reaching a wide audience, um, I don't know. Um, but I think they are kind of crystallizing and p- perpetuating these kind of talking points and these narratives, um, that I think are undeniably, um, influential, um, on, on, uh, in right-wing kind of spheres, um, in a way that I think, um, in a way that is, it's is still hard to fathom. And yet it kind of makes sense that the Trump could claim that the election was fraudulent in advance of the election happening, right? If I lose, it's fraudulent. Um, and that people would believe this, um, you know. I don't want to go too far and say that it's all conservative media um, that's making this possible. I think it's more complicated than that. But I do think um, that the the kind of echo chamber, as it's called, um, of you know private universities and cable news and talk radios and books um, and uh, fiction films and documentary films that there's there's ways in which um, you know, conservatives, uh, in this country can embed themselves in this, you know, um, echo chamber of self-fulfilling prophecies of always kind of hearing the same message over and over again. And so I think the, the films and videos contribute to that. Um, but are certainly, um, I don't, I don't think they're, uh, widely viewed, um, not, not in the way that again, like the Tucker Carlson show is on, a, on an evening.
0: You know? Yeah, <laughs> I know. And like I said before, that's where you can almost, I, I were, I live in, Uh, northern Kentucky, northeast Kentucky, right on the West Virginia border and right below Ohio. So generally speaking, it can be very conservative, although the small city I live in has a a definite democratic stronghold. I mean, it's like in most states. The big cities are almost entirely going to end up being democratic or or at least blue-leaning, and then you get into the rural areas. And I actually had a person say to me, Trump had—it had to have been a a, a a fix, and they said the reason is, I can't imagine why anyone would vote for Joe Biden, and because they wouldn't do it, they just assume the rest of the world's the same way, and this is where this whole idea of, well, I believe it, therefore um, it must be true.
1: Yeah, yeah, well, and I think um, to, to flip it, that's also one reason why I thought it was important to write this book. Um, because I think it is quite easy to dismiss and denigrate um, kind of the right wing and of conservative media, you know, from a kind of liberal knee-jerk perspective. Like it, it's all nonsense. It's just stupid. It's it's irrational. Um, and again, I I understand those responses, um, but but I think it's it's also important to um, to take seriously, right, the kind of rhetorical structures and the conceits and the aesthetics. Um, because at the very least they are effective right they they, they are impactful on people
0: exactly if if 67% of republicans supposedly believe that the election wasn't fair then that's a sizable part of the population it's it's not uh, it's not the majority of the popul- the entire population but that's the number i saw the other day and whether no i don't know how perfect the poll was but it sounds right that there would be that, because they've been told since, as you pointed out, even before the election, that it had to have been fixed if he doesn't win. Um, what is your, I mean, have you read anything or talked, gotten any information as to any thoughts about, what about the concept of conspiracy theory and conservatism? I mean, I know conspiracy theory has been around for a long time, but it just seems that lately so much of the, because they tend to be anti-government, many of the conspiracy theories, and have you seen i don't I'm not I know I'm probably putting you on the spot again just the same way with the with the uh, popularity of some of this is it it just seems to me that they all seem part of the same concept where you want to argue something that's unprovable. and yeah. so the only way you're gonna argue it is to say, well, you know, I'm sure it's true or something to that effect where so much of these um These concepts are almost based on conspiracy. You know, the idea that it there must be something behind the scenes that's doing it.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah, it's it's um, it's not something that I delve into as you mentioned uh, too much in the book. I mean, I I do point to Richard Hofstetter on on paranoia, um, and I think hysteria and
0: paranoia tend to go together quite
1: well. For sure. For sure. Um, You know, Mark Mark Andreevich uh, has written a bit around kind of conservative conspiracy theories in his uh, wonderful book Info Glut. Jody Dean um, has done some on on this. I think what what I would say is um, this gets to uh, one of the things I I, I haven't really talked about today. This um, what I call the economies of inattention. Um, And this comes.
0: That's one of the chapters that we sort of that's probably one of the few things that we haven't brought up too much at all.
1: Yeah, this comes up in the, this is the chapter on anti-Obama mm-hmm. uh, documentaries. Um, and I think just real real quickly, you know, one of the, the things that, that happens there in, in uh, Dinesh D'Souza's film, 2016, Obama's America, uh, which was, did, did play widely in theaters. It was a wide release uh, in Cineplexes um, that came out. Um, you know, around the time of the, the 2012 election or in advance of that election as, a, as an attempt to sway um, the election uh, between Obama and Romney. And of course, this is where con- conservatives are actually mimicking Michael Moore to go back to mo- Moore releasing Fahrenheit, uh, Fahrenheit 9/11 in, uh, in 2004. Um, but uh, one of the just the basic moves that DSouza makes um, in, the, in 2016, Obama's America is to subtract any historical context, uh, from Obama's presidency, and then to again, you know, to try to scare people to ask the question, you know, why did Obama all of a sudden um, restrict drilling offshore in the in the Gulf of Mexico? Right, that's that's so strange. Maybe he is he trying to destroy our our, our economy? Does he not like America? It leaves out, um, you know, the entire BP oil spill that that yeah. has devastated that um, that region. So it's inattentive. The film is inattentive um, to historical context that then I think lays the groundwork for hysteria like what's going on? why is Obama doing these things Well because we haven't told you um, any of the kind of uh, contextual historical information that would explain um, his actions which again like you could just dis- you know disagree with Obama's actions that would be a reasonable thing to do but again the the films aren't going that far as to stage a disagreement so much as they are again trying to hystericize their audience so I think to get back to um, the question of, of conspiracy theories or something like QAnon, um, I, I would speculate, um, and I, and I might want to look at this going forward that the ways in which, um, conservative media remains committed to their narratives, remains committed to, you know, psych psycholo- offering pop psychological interpretations of their opponents and their opponents intentions, um, does kind of create fertile ground for conspiracy theories to gain hold I think, in audiences that might not have otherwise succumbed to them, right? That um, pers- Again, to go back to COVID, um, if all of a sudden the country is shutting down as the virus is spreading, um, but your preferred media outlets never talked about what was going on in China or Italy or Germany or wherever else before the virus got here, you're, you're kind of set up. Um, For then the kind of conspiracy theories uh, that circulated that this was, you know, manufactured in a lab in Wuhan and then this is the start of World War Three or something else. So there is a kind of a kind of resonance between what I'm, you know, what I call hysterical conservative discourse and then the proliferation of conspiracy theories.
0: We've talked about the book for an hour, and yet I still feel like there's so much in there that we could talk about further. I I do think uh, the whole concept of using stock footage, like, you know, and you talk about that, and we talked about it briefly, but that is in the last chapter, or the, the, the final chapter before your conclusions, that the concept of using stock footage so much as opposed to and having it not really mean anything as opposed to i mean obviously michael moore uses stock footage i mean other documentarians use it use stock footage but they don't usually use it to try to illustrate a point it's usually used for transition or to make a often humorous point or something that's not that important to the overall structure of uh, of the argument but uh so that's, that's in the, the the last chapter. but And then, you, of course, one of the ones you mentioned in, in when you talk about stock footage is is Atomic Cafe, which is, of course, not one of those films, but it is still one of my favorite documentaries of all time. I I know I said uh, Michael Moore was the one who sort of pushed me back into documentaries, but I think it was probably more likely Atomic Cafe because I did see that, and that made it into theaters. And I still think to this day it's one of the most interesting documentaries, but... It has no narration, it, it, it has no narrator, which we, you talk about quite a bit in in, in Chapter 4, the idea of, of, a, of a direct um, documentary. And, and yet, it if you're willing to give it the thought that it needs, it makes its point.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think that's one of, it's again, one of the kind of practical, or the argument began with a practical problem um, of, you know, much as I didn't want to Um, you know, gear so much of my life to watching, you know, Fox news every day or listening to talk radio. Um, I also realized that I was writing about objects, these conservative uh, films, um, that would be new to most of my readers. Right. Um, and so I, I I thought to myself, well, maybe a a helpful way of contextualizing and, and giving the readers a way in would be to look at more conventional, um, documentary films, um, as, as I do really in, in, in every chapter, um, but then you know that kind of practical decision or pragmatic decision then actually produced i think some some insight is that um what i found the conservative films doing was kind of magnifying these kind of ethical problems and aesthetic difficulties that are true of just any documentary film right how does one represent a, a historical events accurately um and of course documentary filmmakers you know, play that play, you know, around the edges of that line of, you know, using archival footage in ways that might not be exactly, you know, illustrative of the point that they're making. And that's just kind of a, um, a feature of, of nonfiction film um, that, that filmmakers run across all the time. And yet, you know, as I, as I argue in that chapter on stock footage, the conservative films, you know, just push that, you know, to such ridiculous levels of, um, of making the most broad overarching historical claims when their evidence is nothing but stock
0: footage. Right. And I mean, yeah, it's still funny that um, Atomic Cafe uses uh, old uh, movies, old what we would have called, you know, educational films to a large extent, and yet almost every bit of it is meant to be hysterical. Everything's meant to make you scared. I mean, those films back then, that's what they were there for, is to scare you about the Russians, about the bomb, about this, about that, and and how we have to be careful about all of it. And it is so funny that uh, um, it just proves that the concept of trying to keep people scared is not new.
1: Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, I think the only thing I would add to that is that I think there is a way in which a lot of conservative media is trying to scare people, not so much to produce action, right, but to... Convince them that there's really nothing to worry about, to go about their lives. Um, That uh, if Obama is scary because he's a a socialist, well, if everybody on the left is a socialist, that also implies that there's nothing special about uh, Obama or AOC or Bernie Sanders or whatever else. And so I think that also fits back into the, this commitment to narrative and to a kind of these moral dichotomies um, that the fear is, is again, depoliticizing. It's a way to end the discussion, like no matter who you're hearing speak from the other side, they're always the same scary thing, right? So the, the scary thing is, is you know, is a, it's a feature of it, but I think also that it's always the same antagonist, right, is is central here.
0: Well, as I say, we've talked quite a bit around the book and, and about the book and about a lot of it, about your your own experience with many of these uh, uh, the the concepts and once again as i say i appreciate that you went to all this trouble because frankly <laughs> i don't know that i could spend 5 minutes with some of these films because my fear is i'd be i'd be i'd turn them off so quickly because it would be like i can't handle it but i, I think the political aspect is important aspect oh, much man. almost more than i mean the filmmaking part of it is important too but i think the fact that they're out there and and that they they do seemingly have a point of view even if it's not to actually tell you anything is an important one. Um, Are you continuing to do work on this or do you have other things that you're working on now or, or, or are you now just taking, just doing normal research or, or, or do you have projects in mind?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm working on a book manuscript that's looking at um, films that are responding to the, to the 2008 financial crisis. Um, But you know, Hollywood films, you know, from the big short to margin call, Uh, to more independent films like The Florida Project and American Honey. Um, So I continue to be interested in in psychoanalytic theory and uh, politics and and film, in this case, fiction film or allegorical films. Um, On the conservative side of things, I I am interested to kind of move forward and think more about the kind of um, the dissolution of these boundaries between um, media, entertainment, and government, right? And, of, of course, Trump... Um, stands out there. Um, but but I'm, I'm interested to kind of dive a bit deeper into the ways in which um, talking points and arguments and ideas that circulate often first in right-wing media may then become taken up by conservative politicians, may then uh, influence Supreme Court decisions that may become actual policy. Um, one, one of the examples that, that I'm, I'm looking at right now is just, uh, you know, ACORN and Project Veritas. Uh, James O'Keefe, who uh, is pretty pretty well known uh, for his, you know, he's a conservative guerrilla journal, journalist, as he calls himself, and made these, you know, highly edited, uh, false undercover videos um, at ACORN uh, offices. that. Definitely- <laughs>
0: Don't keep going. We're almost done. <laughs> the the, the uh, dog's I'm running out of the, the room.
1: Of, uh, of Acorn. And so I, I am interested to um, push a bit beyond just looking at the aesthetics of these films and, and how, how they're, the, the boundaries between governance and policy and media are, are starting to break
0: down. I'm particularly interested in that the, the 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 one about the 2008 housing crisis because I'll be honest with you, these days probably my most favorite documentaries are those that are related to some sort of a you know scams, uh, business failings or other kinds of similar works where uh, that try to explain concepts. I you know I, I of course alex gibney has made of his entire career these days on those kind of ones even if it's about a particular topic it's almost always going to have a business underpinning which i think are are, are int- make them interesting and of course that's probably my own uh failings to believe to, to 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 look at those kinds as being uh particularly interesting but as i say um documentaries are are you know, have continued, of course, in this case, you're also going to be looking at a uh, narrative film, which is great. Cause I think you're right. Uh, I big short, I have to admit, I watch multiple every once in a while. I sit down and watch it again and I've got margin. I believe it or not. I've never watched margin call, but I've got it somehow. It, I got it in a, from Apple in a, in a, one of their bundles that was in there and I just have never watched it. So I guess I need to watch it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think uh, Uncut Gems is a, is a chapter I'm planning on, and I think that's right. one of the better films to, to explain how speculative finance works, even though it's it's n- it's not set on Wall Street but in the, the kind of jewelry district. Uh, right. I, but I think it's, um, it's instructive nevertheless.
0: Well, anyway, I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm glad we had time to talk. I think the book is very thought-provoking. I mean, I know that's an easy word, phrase to use, but I think it's true. There's a lot of useful information, not only for the conservative me to – Media, film, documentaries, but also documentaries in general, and how uh, the these concepts can be very important. And like I say, one of the things I liked the most about it is you've really worked hard on the theoretical underpinnings of and of the of the concepts. And I think that that's in particular what makes the book so interesting. So anyway, I once again I thank you for your time, and I uh, I hope you enjoyed this conversation.
1: I did. Thank you so much. It was great to talk with you.
0: Thanks, Scott. My thanks to Scott for his time. This book is the first exploration of how right-wing documentarians use the work to display their ideas. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.